Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 376, Lost Years and Lost Lands. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now on the members feed, we're talking about William of Normandy and the world he was raised in. We just launched episode three, which focuses on his guardians, the men who were tasked with governing Normandy while William was too young to rule. And it was also their job to make sure William had the proper training to become the man who would be in the future. And I'll let you decide if they did a good job. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Chris, Sigurd, and Cam for signing up already. Things are moving quickly in our story now. Pieces are moving into place, and the board is shifting rapidly. Thanks to the benefit of hindsight, we can see where this is going and see how these events are leading to a calamity that's just a few years away. But for the people living through it, the events of these years were chaotic and tense, and there wasn't a clear outcome that it was driving towards. Their world was on the edge of a knife. I mean, just think about the uncertainty we've been discussing that surrounded the years of 1057 and 1058. To the north, you had King Malcolm Bighead warring against King Lulach over the throne of Scotland. And to the south, you had the English court desperately trying to arrange an heir for the throne, and then trying to work out what they were going to do once their perfect choice, Edward the Exile, up and died mere days after arriving on English shores. I mean, that's wild. And some folks on our Reddit community have been speculating if Edward had been assassinated. And to be fair, that wouldn't be the first time someone was murdered over a throne. But so far, no one's fessed up. And honestly, plenty of people during this time got sick and died while traveling. So we might never know. There's no indication in the record that he was killed, and a normal death is completely plausible. But it's also not impossible that something else happened, which wasn't recorded. I genuinely don't know. But while all that was going on, there was one more major upset taking place in Wales. And based on the silence in many of our records, it was a something that England really would have liked to have erased from history altogether. And it all starts with King Gruffith of Wales. It was probably an uncomfortable truth for the English that King Gruffith was wielding a degree of power in Wales that had never been seen. He was the king of all of Wales. No Welsh king had ever commanded that much political, military, and economic power. But what exactly does that mean? Does that mean he was basically King Edward, but Welsh? Well, one thing to remember throughout our story is that Wales is not England. And the Welsh are already well too aware of this fact. But for the non-Welshmen listening, Wales is Wales. It's not England. It has its own distinct culture and history, and that impacts all things, big and small. As such, the powers and constraints of a king of all of Wales aren't necessarily the same as the powers and constraints of a king of the English. So before we get to the event that the English tried to erase, first, we should talk about the culture that influenced it. And we already know some of the cultural differences. 
For example, we discussed earlier how Welsh law limited the king's ability to conscript soldiers. And I believe we also briefly discussed how the Welsh state was structured to be subdivided into ever smaller administrative bodies, which, to be honest, is a bit like the English, but with its own twist. The main building block of the Welsh state was the Cantrefi, and functionally, these were very much like English hundreds. Even the name is similar, roughly meaning hundred town. And governing over these Cantrefi were the Maerdrefi, and these Maerdrefi were the property of the king. And the king and his court would travel among them and handle the administrative and legal matters of the region while they were there. So very much like how the English dealt with royal estates. But once you get past these similarities, you see key differences. In England, many of the legal matters in a hundred were handled by the hundred court, with only the highest ranked or most severe matters coming before the English king and his royal court. In the Welsh system, the Maerdref was the local court of law, but it was also property that was held for the exclusive use of the king. So when you went to settle legal matters, you were taking it to the king's residence and his court, not your local council. And the matters would be heard either by the king himself or by his officers. Furthermore, the Maerdrefi, as the king's residence, was also where the king and his court went to gather his rents. And while he and his court were there, the local community was expected to provide food, drink, and everything else the king and his companions needed. So whereas the English system was heavily delegated and the hundred court was distinct from the royal court who would go to the royal estates, the Welsh system was integrated and these Maerdrefi fulfilled multiple roles. As such, the Maerdrefi were integral for the Welsh system of administration. And so it should come as no surprise that they were also much more numerous than English royal estates. A Cantrefi would typically have four Maerdrefi within it which was many more than their English counterparts. And considering that these Maerdrefi were properties that were held for the exclusive use of the king, that meant that the king had property everywhere. And it was often the best property. The Maerdrefi were well-placed with a mind towards ease of accessibility and convenience. And that makes sense. If you want a central administrative location, centralization is important. And through the system, the kings of Wales had locked up much of the best and most productive land in Wales. And they'd become quite skilled at wielding that advantage to extract wealth from their subject population. And as Wales was home to many kings, often many warring kings, that meant that you had wealthy rulers doing this all over Wales, traveling from place to place, hearing cases, settling matters, and of course, gathering rents from everyone. And then everything changed, and King Gruffith became the king of all of Wales. And so now, rather than many kings holding some number of Maerdrefi each, now there was one king who held all of them. So you might be thinking that King Gruffith now had a bunch of castles, or at least forts, all over Wales. But you'd be wrong. In general, fortification wasn't a strategy frequently used by the Welsh. Instead, they focused on ease of access. The Welsh did build some fortified sites, and you can still find some of these places by their place names. Native fortified sites often carry the words Cair 
or Din in their name. And if you come across a Welsh town or village with Caer or Din, well, there's a good chance that that's a community that likely held a major fortified location at one time. But these kinds of names aren't as common as you might expect. And that isn't just an issue with naming conventions. A look at archaeology shows that heavy fortification just wasn't a habit of the Welsh. It also appears that the few fortified sites that existed were exclusively built by Welsh kings. Though it isn't clear whether that was because lesser lords were legally barred from the practice, or they simply couldn't afford it, or if there just wasn't a culture of fortification among the lesser nobles. It's hard to say. But building big walls and gates seems to have been a thing that only the kings did, and even then, it really wasn't a priority like it was for the English. And this disinterest in fortification, and the focus on ease of access, serves as an excellent, literally grounded illustration of the deep cultural differences between the Welsh and the English. The English, as well as their Norman conquerors, were all about that fort life. King Alfred made fortifications a major focus of his reign, and his children and descendants carried on that legacy. That's why even today, many towns and villages throughout England have names that end with Burr. That reflects their history as a fortified site. The Normans, for their part, built castles. Like, way, way more castles than you'd expect. In just the first 20 years of occupation, the Normans had built nearly 700 Motten Bailey castles. If you throw a stone in England, you'll probably hit a Norman castle, or at least a hill that once was home to a Norman castle. It's crazy. But for the Welsh, that wasn't as important. Instead, the focus really does appear to have been accessibility. And actually, these sites were so convenient that when the Normans later began colonizing Wales and organizing to extract wealth from the Welsh, well, they built their first earthenworks right on top of the Meyer Drefi, which, unfortunately, means that there's a significant amount of archaeological information from these sites that's either very hard to find or just lost due to the Norman earthenworks and other constructions which destroyed the original Welsh buildings. And that's actually on top of the archaeological problem that non-fortified sites are much harder to find already. But the Welsh priority of building sites for ease of access is oddly also reflected in the Norman archaeological record. Because once the Normans really began to take over, and the focus moved away from administration and towards domination, well, then they began to build stone castles. And they did it in other locations. Locations which were much more defensible and hard to reach. Those Meyer-Dreffy, it seems, were just too exposed. And you can see the cultural difference that the Normans brought in place name evidence as well. Looking around Wales, you'll find places with Casteth in their name. And that word indicates that the site was fortified. However, it's a word that's typically used for non-native fortifications. Ones that were built by an invading force. For example, during the Norman invasion of Wales by William the Conqueror, they constructed Casteth Coch. And since the Normans loved castles and invasions, you will see quite a few Casteths in Wales. But when you look for the Cairs and the Dens, the locations that are likely to have once held native fortified sites, well, they're a lot less common than the Burrs are in England. And here's where this gets really interesting. Because I'm sure that some of you are thinking, all right, so the king had a ton of properties where royal activity was centered. 
and they were all over the place, but they weren't fortified. So how on earth did Welsh kings handle defense? Well, that's where culture meets history. Welsh kings had hundreds of years of experience in defending their lands and in attacking their neighbors. And throughout those centuries, Welsh kings often posed a threat to each other. But one of the biggest dangers faced by any Welsh king was the English. The way the English state was organized meant that a king of England, or even an earl of somewhere like Mercia, would be able to concentrate an enormous amount of military force against Wales. And due to the nature of Welsh laws restricting conscription, as well as the organization of Welsh society and simple demographic realities, and of course the fact that the kings of Wales rarely all work together, well, that meant that England could usually overwhelm a single isolated Welsh king, at least in the short term, in a straight-up fight. So, the best chance a Welsh king had against an invading force like England was to avoid a straight-up fight and bring his forces out into the countryside. The English, like all raiders and colonists, were in unfamiliar lands. And so you use that against them. Rather than putting all your resources in a centralized location that would be easy to target and overwhelm, you spread them out. The last thing you want to do is bottle up in a single location and try and make a desperate stand. You take to the woods and you use guerrilla tactics against the invaders. This was the key strategy of the Welsh and the Welsh kings throughout their history. And it was still the way of waging war when Gruffith became the first king of all of Wales. So while King Gruffith could likely marshal more military and economic power than any of his predecessors, the way he exercised that power was distinctly Welsh. For example, upon Gruffith's rise to power, we don't see a sudden development of a capital where many of his resources would be concentrated. Now, Rutland does appear to have been an important administrative site, but it would be incorrect to call it a capital. And while there are legends from the late medieval period that speak of three ancient Welsh capitals, those legends are unreliable. And to date, they have not been confirmed through archaeology. So the fact is that it is highly unlikely that Gruffith would have had anything we'd imagine as a national capital. Instead, he likely traveled around his Maerdrefi, as his predecessors had done. The only difference was King Gruffith had more of them. Furthermore, we don't see a sudden proliferation of fortresses and castles, like was the case in England under Alfred, or later under William. In fact, you'll probably remember that when King Gruffith invaded England and sacked Hereford, all he did was force King Edward to cede some land to Wales. He didn't plunk down a castle and engage in a military occupation in the English style. And that's because King Gruffith ruled in the Welsh manner, and the culture and history of the land informed his strategies. Which brings us to the part of the story that our English sources worked very hard to erase. So hard, in fact, that the scribes of several versions of the Chronicle literally started skipping years in the record. Which, you know, is great, because there's nothing important happening in Britain between now and 1067. That's what everybody says about the late 1050s and the 1060s. Nothing important happened, right? Now, we know the truth, of course, 
Europe was going through a political shakeup that would have such far-reaching ramifications that it literally changed the language that we're speaking right now. This period matters. But some of the scribes really do start skipping years. So why? Well, while Malcolm and Lilac were dueling over Scotland, and while the English court was trying to get a successor for Edward, and their pick died mysteriously after landing on English shores, there was yet another major political shakeup. And this one involves England's latest noble mess, Earl Elfgar. As you might recall, Earl Leofrich of Mercia, Elfgar's dad, had died in late 1057. And because feudalism is generally a terrible way to organize a society, that death meant that a whole bunch of lands and titles got shuffled around to new people. In this case, Elfgar became the new Earl of Mercia, setting aside East Anglia, and Gerth Godwinson became the new Earl of East Anglia. Then, less than a year later, something happened. But version C of the Chronicle, which was the version that hated the Godwins, doesn't mention 1058 at all. That year is just skipped. And while version E of the Chronicle, the version that loves the Godwins, does acknowledge that 1058 happened, it focuses instead on what was going on with the Pope. So, in a rare moment of unity, the scribes who liked the Godwins and the scribes who hated the Godwins both decided to ignore what happened to England in 1058. And they were this close to ensuring that no one in the future would know why. But the scribes of version D of the Chronicle, which is also known as the Worcester Chronicle, probably thought the events of 1058 were a little too close to home to ignore. Because there was some serious drama coming out of the scribes' backyard of Mercia. In that year, Earl Elfgar of Mercia was banished from England for a second time. And this was less than a year after he'd been granted the Earldom of Mercia. What? And then we're told that Elfgar, taking a page out of Chumbawamba, took that knock and then returned to England with a combined land and sea force drawn from Norway and Wales. And thanks to the direct military intervention of King Gruffith, Earl Elfgar reclaimed his lands and titles. So, uh, what the hell happened? And why were so many English scribes trying to ignore this whole thing? I don't know, but it's crazy to think how all they will tell us in our most transparent version of the Chronicle is this. Quote, This year, Earl Elfgar was banished, but he got back by violence forthwith through Gruffith's help and a naval force came from Norway. It is tedious to relate fully how things went. End quote. That is a direct quote. They call a civil war to regain Mercia, with the help of the Welsh king, tedious. The scribes then go on to discuss at length a gift that was given to Bishop Aldred. Apparently, it was, quote, a golden chalice of the value of five marks, of very wonderful workmanship, end quote. And apparently, that's riveting. But a multinational invasion to reinstall an earl who was twice banished by the f***ing king? Tedious. 
Even John of Worcester, who usually loves to spin a good yarn and fill us in with some details, just says, quote, Elfgar, Earl of the Mercians, was outlawed by King Edward a second time. But with the help of Gruffith, King of the Welsh, and the support of the Norwegian fleet, which joined him unexpectedly, he quickly recovered his earldom by force, end quote. That's it. That's all he's going to tell us. It's almost like no one wants to talk about what happened. And I'm not convinced that the folks who were yammering on about the value of chalices are actually concerned about being tedious. And this media blackout of Elfgar's second war carries forward to our modern day. Many English historians still gloss over this whole thing. And some of them even talk about how Wales spent the decades in peace. It's wild, and it suggests to me that they haven't read the non-English sources. Because while we only have Version D and John of Worcester in the English sources, and while both of them are pretty tight-lipped, the Welsh Chronicle is quite happy to talk about this event. The Welsh scribes tell us that Magnus, the son of King Harold Hadrada, arrived in England with a massive military force. He then joined up with King Gruffith of Wales, and together they raided the bejesus out of the English, with Gruffith acting as their leader. And when we look at the Irish sources, they add that Magnus was actually making a bid for the throne of England. But considering the dominant role taken by King Gruffith, and where the Norse and Welsh interests were at at this point, also considering that the Norse presence appeared unexpectedly in the campaign, I don't think the goal here was to appoint Magnus as the King of England. Or if it was, that plan seems to have been dropped pretty quickly once things got started. Looking at the details, my suspicion is that, after being banished, Earl Elfgar ran to his son-in-law, who was King Gruffith, and he sought his support. And then, by chance, Magnus of Norway had arrived in the region, likely making a campaign for the Isle of Man in the Western Isles. And then he noticed that King Gruffith was already campaigning against the English, and he joined up. That would probably also explain why the Irish and Welsh don't even bother mentioning Earl Elfgar. Elfgar might have been nothing more than a convenient excuse for King Gruffith. And then, nothing more than an afterthought once Magnus joined in. And as for the severity of the situation, well, the shame that's apparent in the English sources combined with a grudging admission that King Edward was forced by violence to reappoint Earl Elfgar, suggests that this was a massive drubbing. One that may have been far more wide-ranging and damaging than the previous sacking of Hereford. And thanks to the English habit of concentrating their wealth in religious or royal properties, it's highly likely that Magnus and Gruffith took a lot of loot in the process of burning the English countryside down to the ground. Furthermore, given the way these things tend to go, and given how England tended to resolve conflicts with invading forces, it's likely that England was forced to pay handsomely to bring these raids to a stop. I guess it wouldn't have been a Dane geld, because Gruffith wasn't a Dane. A Welsh geld? The point is, Edward was gelded by the end of this. And then, as a cherry on top, King Gruffith forced the English to reinstall Earl Elfgar. This war, and Elfgar's restoration, 
was a concrete example that King Gruffith was now clearly a major player on the world stage and a serious threat to the English crown. His lands were fully consolidated into a single kingdom without any internal strife. He was able to marshal enough military power that he could invade England at will. Furthermore, he was developing ties with the Norse, his border with England was secure as his close ally Elfgar was the one who was governing the English lands to his east, and Elfgar clearly had no love for the crown. And Gruffith may have already been plotting to marry his daughter, Nest, to one of the border lords of Herefordshire, Osborne Fitzrichard, to further cement his influence on the region. So while Gruffith wasn't building castles and occupying in the English or Norman fashion, I don't think we should read too much into that. The strategies that benefited Gruffith's predecessors still worked, and he and his allies were gleefully wielding those strategies and reaping the benefits. Meanwhile, if you look at the English sources, it's mainly like, who? What? The Welsh? You mean those people we always defeat? We defeat them, by the way. Always. Anyway, look at this chalice. Isn't it nice? It's shiny. Look at the damn chalice. It's like the only one we have left because the Welsh took everything else. I mean, we have plenty of chalices. We're fine. What happened in 1058 was many things. But let's face it, tedious wasn't one of them. Though I am glad the English scribes were excited about that chalice. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit, and you can find links to all our communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>